On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Travis Dickinson about logic and the way of Jesus. So we cover lots of topics like what is logic? What are the various senses of logic? What are the various forms of logical reasoning? How should we understand different forms of arguments? What does logic have to do with Jesus? What are the most common potential logical fallacies? How can we avoid them? What's an intellectual virtue and how do we go about cultivating them? And why should pastors care about the study of logic and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, and we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. So we've tried to develop sort of an intellectual culture, at least in this podcasting space, this online internet area of theology and philosophy that emphasizes four particular things, though not limited to those, and those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think the internet, and all of us, just in our own location, wherever we are, need more of this kind disposition, but also a critical thinking sort of disposition as well. So we don't want to pit these two against each other. We think they're complementary. They go together. Today, I am pumped to introduce you guys to Dr. Travis Dickinson and to discuss his new book, Logic in the Way of Jesus. So if you're not familiar with this, go check it out. Go to Amazon. Go to wherever you buy your books from. Search Logic in the Way of Jesus, subtitled Thinking Critically and Christianly. So he brings together like all the stuff that we want to promote and care about in this book. And I got to say, Travis, the the design on the cover is awesome. I love the way this book looks. I think it's fresh. It's really cool. And you've got some awesome endorsements on the back. I, the, our listeners, you're, if you're a super Baptist nerd, David Dockery's on here. Uh, <laughs> if you're a philosophy nerd, you've got Paul Gould and Ross Inman. Um, right. you, if you're apologetic sort of-ish nerd, Sean McDowell. I mean, J.P. Moreland's in here. You've got all sorts of awesome endorsements in here. Uh, from people who don't endorse books willy-nilly, there's... Obviously, the practice of we just endorse because we were friends with this person. But if you know people like Ross Enman, he would never put his name next to something that he didn't actually believe in. So good on you for that. Um, I'm excited to talk about it. So before we do that, Travis, I'm imagining 80% of our listeners have no idea who you are. So give us a little background. Who are you? Where are you, doing, where are you at? And then what made you interested in writing a book on logic and connecting it to the Christian faith? Well, awesome. Jordan and Brandon, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm i originally from New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I decided to go to Alaska Bible College, because that makes sense. Um, and I sort of left Alaska Bible College. Uh, really, my whole goal was an adventure. I always joke that I really was not there for the college part of that, nor the Bible part of that, unfortunately, but really the the Alaska piece. Um, But anyway, sort of left that. I I really got sort of gripped by apologetics. um, And that's what I, you know, knew what that's, I knew that's what I wanted to do is, is teach and teach apologetics. And as I sort of got into it, realized that the guys that I really looked up to, guys like JP, uh, Bill Craig, and Others were doing philosophy, and so I sort of jumped into that. 
and just uh, honestly told the Lord that I would go as far as he would allow, you know, those sort of doors to open and um, got the privilege to go to Biola for a couple master's degrees, did seminary there, and then um, went to the University of Iowa and did a master's degree as well as a PhD there. And then it sort of just made sense, you know, having been to Alaska and uh, California, New Jersey, Alaska to California to uh, Iowa to just come to Texas. And so I landed at Southwestern Seminary and was there for about 10 years. Uh, and just recently, so this past August, I uh, made a switch over to Dallas Baptist University and I'm thrilled to uh, be part of this community here. Well, uh, let's start with a, a definition of logic. So maybe tell us what you mean by logic. I know in your book, you kind of give more of an informal uh, definition of what you mean when you say logic, but then also you bring out the three principles. So maybe that would be a good way to kind of set the table for what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Well, uh, and by informal, uh, I think to what what is intended is accessible. Uh, so from from the very start to make clear that I'm not coming at this as a specialist in logic or philosophy of logic. Um, you know, I've of course uh, studied in these areas through through my grad program and so on. But um, and I've taught in these areas. This is actually the first college level course I taught. Taught was a little. Uh, uh, I don't know. I said little, but a a course in called basic reasoning at a um, community college there in Iowa, and so. Um, and I've really taught it since then. So that's probably going on 15 years that I've been teaching these concepts. So the book is very meant to be very introductory. Um, so <laughs> scanning through the various other guests you guys have on, which are amazing, by the way, um, this is going to be much more of a me speaking as a non-specialist, but somebody who thinks this, these issues are really important. And, you know, I think it's important sometimes for the non-specialist to uh, write on these issues uh, because sometimes non-specialists can do it in a way that's more accessible um, than than the specialists. Uh, and that goes for me and my areas of specialization as well. So anyway, but what logic is, okay, so sort of rough and ready uh, uh uh, characterization of logic would be the relations that hold between um, propositions. And in the book, again, with an effort to make it more accessible, I don't actually use the word proposition, at least I don't think I do, but uh, because it's so philosophically loaded, um, right, I think that just makes us feel a little better to not use the philosophically loaded term without saying anything about it. And so I use the word statement. So it's uh Logic is the relations that hold between statements. Um, but when we do logic, when we're sort of studying logic, um, we're doing a kind of normative thing. So we're we're talking about um, the use of logic in order to to arrive at truth. I think that's got to be part of that discussion. So that when we are studying it, we are studying things like the standards. I li- I like to put it in terms of the standards. Um, that we can use to evaluate arguments, um, and so it's it again. It's all looking at uh, those relations. So a relation like the relation of entailment is an important logical relation, and so we would look at an argument, and if it's got, if the relation of entailment holds between the premises and the conclusion, well, that's a good argument. That's the normativity that comes into a study 
of logic. So yeah, I think that's how I'd, I would answer it is to talk about the uh, the relations between uh, statements or propositions. So you saying you're not a specialist, you're saying you're not as nerdy as J.C. Beale is. That's right. I, that's right. I, well, probably as nerdy, but just in different areas. That, that, yes. There you go. That's right. You're, you're right. Um, <laughs> so one thing I, you know, I love reading through your book, early on in it, you mentioned there's just this paragraph that I really like that I want to highlight before I move on. Okay. Um, it, you say, the reason historically people didn't become Christians merely on the basis of emotional appeals is that churches were once intellectual centers. Yes. The pastor, often the most educated person in the town, was an intellectual as much as he was a spiritual advisor. And you go on and you, and you talk, you, you got John Wesley talking about the value of logic uh, and, and seeing pastors want to study that. And it, we'll, we can talk more about like, you know, why should pastors care about logic and, and normal church members too? But I'm just going to say at the beginning, I mean, I think this is tremendous and awesome. So for those who are already convinced, before you try to convince them, do this. Give me just this, the various forms of logical reasoning so that we can help understand and learn what these are to better our ministries. Because I'm just going to assume most of our listeners up front already think that this is valuable. Those who don't, wait, wait, we'll get there. Um, right. And how should we understand different forms of arguments? So people might have heard of like inductive or deductive sort of arguments. What, is, what does that look like? And how, do those, how are those structured? Right. So um, if you were to take a class, you would probably spend a fair amount of time looking at argument forms. And so there, there's a great variety of them. And so... Um, Right, I guess you got to buy the book if you really want to get all of them, but no, uh, or a book like this. But uh, there's there's at least one important distinction to be made, of course. Um, uh, and again, this is like intro. I, you know, there's something that we call baby logic, but this is like preborn logic, and some like this is like you know baby like in the womb logic or something. Um, so the the distinction is often. The major distinction would be what again, I put it in terms of standards, and this actually goes back to my thesis advisor at Iowa um put it this way, so I certainly um was influenced by him, but Richard Fummerton um there and he, he the way he would present it is as different standards that we would uh apply as we're evaluating arguments, so sometimes you you know somebody that's had a logic class or a critical thinking or basic reasoning class might have heard the distinction as deductive arguments versus inductive arguments. Well, again, I don't think these are kinds of arguments as much as standards that we would use to evaluate them. And so the deductive standards um, are, are sort of wondering about whether or not the premises entail the conclusion. And if they do, then it's, of course, a... Um, deductively valid argument um and but what what really throws um students off the, with the first brush of logic is that they uh are told that something can entail so a statement can entail another statement p can entail q uh no matter whether or not right p is true uh or not but what it is for it to entail it is that um if p is true then uh necessarily q is true. And so if the if uh if it's such that if the argument is such that um if the premises are true uh and it entails the conclusion then we call that a a valid 
argument. But of course, we we can make all kinds of crazy arguments that way with radically false premises, uh, and we do that in class to just mess students mess with students a little bit. No, but we do that to, to make the point that uh, right a a a premise can can entail another. Sorry, a statement can entail another statement, uh, even if it's false. But we don't want arguments like that. That's not a good argument. Again, that's that normativity piece. Um, we want to have true premises. So when you have true premises, then you have a sound argument. Now, that's contrasted to uh, arguments where uh, the premises don't entail the conclusion, but they just make likely the conclusion. And so there's a whole nother area, and it's in its own way much more everyday types of reasoning. So typically we're not uh, reason like when I'm looking out the window and I see have a experience of a tree, and I conclude that there is a tree, and I sort of, I guess, reflectively formalize that in my mind in some ways. Um, I think that's a good argument, but it's definitely not a deductively valid argument. It doesn't have entailment there. Um, those that conclusion is made likely by the premise. And so I call this non-deductive standards um, because uh, we've got inductive arguments and we've got abductive arguments. And uh, it seems to me that uh, when we just call these inductive, it, it gets confusing. And so I just confuse in a different way and call these non-deductive. Um, and these are arguments where the premises, if true, make likely the conclusion uh, and we would call that a strong argument. And if it uh, if the premises are indeed true, it's a cogent argument. So there's all a whole host of uh, forms here. So on the deductive side, uh, right, you've got arguments like modus ponens and modus tollens and and hypothetical syllogism and things like that. And one thing that's probably worth noting there is that those arguments, since the, it's we're talking about entailment. When it comes to validity, it doesn't actually matter if they're true or false, as as I said a minute ago. So then it really doesn't even matter if you have a sentence. You don't actually have to have like actual words there. You can use symbols because, again, it doesn't really matter if it's true or false. That's why often you'll see it as P and Q. You could probably even – I've always been tempted to use emojis to represent uh, the statements, uh, just to be more uh, contemporary, I guess, or something, and, and fit in with the with the kids. But um, you could do that, uh, just holding, you know, uh, constant those symbols uh, to look at. And what that really allows us to do when it comes to a deductively valid argument is see the logical structure, because that's really what it it that's that's again going back to the definition of logic as the relations that hold between statements, uh, when we look at arguments like that, we're really looking at the logical structure of the argument. So that's why we can, and then come up with these different sort of common forms. Uh, and same, similar at least to non-deductive arguments, but here um, it's a little messier and it's a little looser. And so we can talk about things like uh, a kind of uh, inductive generalization where one looks at uh, a number of different instances that all ha bear a certain property, and then concluding um, that all instances of that thing bear that property, right? You generalize. Now, hopefully that's clear enough that when you generalize, it's never going to be guaranteed. Um, it's just made likely again, but that's, that's this whole area of non-deductive standards.
So as we've already mentioned, the title of the book is Logic in the Way of Jesus. So I, we, we should tie this conversation to Jesus at some point. So now seems as good a time as any. So there you go. Um, what you what you do in the book is you, you talk about um, there are three different areas that logic is on display uh, in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. So maybe as answering the question, what does logic have to do with Jesus? You could yeah. maybe, maybe pick one of those and sketch it out for us. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and I, I've got to give credit where credit's due, of course. So um, Dallas Willard is is really, uh, in many ways, the person who um, influenced me the most. I, I, not personally, but just through his writings. Uh, and then J.P. Moreland, of course, too. So, I, you know, I actually had a guy that reviewed the book, and he and I loved the book, everything, you know, Except that he said it was unoriginal, so I kind of take that like it really is. It's I'm, uh, hopefully it's a fresh look, uh, and hopefully there's some original thought more than this reviewer thought. But um, right, it is heavily depending on sort of the Dallas Willard sort of approach. And so, anyway, um, right, and Dallas Willard makes the point that uh, Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived, and. In one sense, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. So, uh, you know, divinely omniscient makes a person pretty smart. So uh, we're done here. But but really what Willard's point is, is that Jesus exemplified, I think, the intellectual virtues and exempl- exemplified um, brilliance, honestly. And so in his ministry, so so is he— Divinely omniscient, yes, but in the same way we should um, be blown away by his moral character, he's also divinely omnibenevolent, you know, so, you know, but we're still, you know, should be sort of uh, um, living our lives according to the moral exemplification. Um, In the same way we should see he is divinely omniscient, but... We ought to look at his life and be blown away by his uh, exemplification of of the intellect. And so I really, I think that really blew me away. And then as I began studying these things um, a bit more and writing the book, what really struck me is how many times throughout Jesus's life and ministry, it says that the people were astonished. I mean, it is over and over again. I was just reading, I was just meeting with some pastors, um, the other another night going through a little study and and again we read it I think it was mark 10 or, or someplace there where where uh, the disciples are just astonished by what Jesus is telling them you know and it's over and over and over again it actually starts in Luke chapter 2 when um you know uh, Jesus's parents think uh, he's with them as they're traveling back to Nazareth uh, and he's not and they find him back in the temple and it says he's sitting among the you know, teachers of the uh, the the temple, uh, sort of the religious elites there, uh, these scholars. He's sitting among them, um, listening and asking questions. And I just think that's. And they were astonished by the things he was saying. And so that sort of just starts this. And you got the folks in Nazareth who are thinking this is the carpenter's son, and they're astonished by what he has to say. And this, so Jesus is constantly drawing crowds. And I think we often sort of just assume that's because he's like, you know, 
healing folks and uh, doing miracles and so on, but that's actually the exception. It's typically because of his teaching. Um, it's typically because of, uh, and I think there's a lot to that. I don't want to just say that that just boils down to he was this amazing um you know, logician or something like that. I think it's far more than that why people were so drawn to him. But it's partly because of, I think, a, a sort of intellectual dimension to Jesus's um, presentation. And so anyway, um, I look at three different things there. Uh, one is just his ability to refute people with logic. And so if you look at probably the, I, I sort of go detailed through Matthew 22, uh, sort of the the second half of Matthew 22, where you, it's kind of this like rapid fire. The Pharisees get geared up to challenge him, and and they get silenced by Jesus's logic. And then the Sadducees try, and then it's it's one after the other. And he um, he really refutes them with logic. And I, you know, it's always like uh, a little striking to keep in mind that like Jesus could have also like smoked these guys, like he could have like vaporized them. Uh, you know, in his power, but he didn't. He actually uh, refutes them with logic, and I just think that's um, cr- quite extraordinary. Um, and in Matthew 22, uh, right, you have the great commandment to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. And it's interesting, at least, that Jesus adds the mind a bit there, because that's not the way it's phrased in Deuteronomy 6. And, you know, of course, there's lots of ways people have speculated why Jesus uh, sort of tweaked that in a bit. And I think there's nothing wrong with that, of course, because Deuteronomy 6 is saying, love God with every ounce of who you are. And so he could have maybe also said, like, love God with all of your foot, too, I suppose. And, you know, I mean, maybe not, but right, it's he's not saying something different, but in the midst of him refuting <laughs> these folks with logic, you know, challenge after challenge, he adds to it. Again, I'm just sort of speculating, but he adds to it, you know, we you know, the the most important thing for us to do is in part to love God with all of our minds, almost like he's saying you guys challenging this, you know, you need to love God with your mind here. You don't get it. Um and so anyway, um he does that. He also, uh, his use of story, I think, is really uh, quite the expression of his brilliance. Um, so stories like, you know, of course, his parables and things, uh, the story of the prodigal son. I just think there's, you know, the depth of the account is just um, breathtaking, and especially when you you know who he's all talking to there and things like that. Um Right, he he gives this very shocking story about a son who demands uh, his father's uh, the inheritance from his father it would be shocking, but he uses that Jesus uses that shock in a way to really make an important point, and it's not about prodigals; it's really a point about the elder son who would be the uh, sort of analog to um, the Pharisees and other religious leaders and so on. And it's just amazing, like when you start to really kind of understand, or something like the the Good Samaritan, you know, he's using a hated, racially hated person uh, as the hero of the story, and the Levites and the priests are the sort of villains of the story. 
Uh, it's it's really quite brilliant. Uh, and Jesus is sort of effortless effortless use of story i think is a a um a sign of his of his brilliance or an expression of his brilliance and then thirdly is his um the depth of the gospel message i think is a way in which we see the brilliance of jesus is uh right the the way in which the gospel you know to sort of uh borrow a phrase from Pascal. Actually, it's really not Pascal. It's just people have, have misquoted Pascal to talk about that God-shaped heart, right? Pascal talks about the infinite abyss. Uh, Augustine talks about his restless heart. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, is is all in this space as well. And, and the gospel addresses that deepest part of who we are and brings a kind of human flourishing that... Um, Right is of course not possible in my view. Um, in a, any other view, and you know, this is coming from you know having studied philosophy and had, having a broad uh, education and reading thinkers and philosophers. I, I love Plato, but he's not the gospel. Right, it's not the not the brilliance of the gospel. Uh, I love Aristotle. I love these these folks, but there's just nothing in all the world and um, in the history of thought that I think is comparable to the brilliance of the gospel. Yeah, that's good. So there, I mean, you've got 14 total chapters in the book. Um, I'm not going to be able to touch on all of them, which we want to, part of that is like, so go, go buy the book so you can learn more about it. One of them that I did want to touch on with, I don't want you to unpack everything in this. So you've got a chapter on fallacies. I want to know in your opinion, what is the most maybe abused fallacy that you see mm. and how can can we go about helping people not make it again? Because you don't want to be the annoying, obnoxious guy, almost yeah. like first year seminary student who comes up. Well, excuse me, that's you're committing X fallacy. Let me explain to this. So I how number one, what's the most abused one? And then number two, how do you actually help people not make that same mistake? Okay. Yeah, and there are times. <laughs> to be that annoying person that's that points out, hey, actually, uh, no, but uh, I think in this day and age, of course, the age of Twitter and um, that kind of a thing, the fallacy of straw of of committing a straw man um, is so common and so um, in a way destructive. I think to having dialogue. Um, so the fallacy, uh, the, the straw man fallacy is where you characterize someone's view and you do it in such a way that's easily defeated. You know, you do it often in a way that sounds ridiculous. And, you know, the only problem of which is it's not actually that person's view. So, you know, good job there. But um, I think that, you know, this is happening so often, and like I said, it's it's so destructive to actually having a good dialogue because there's all you know. Typically, there's a kind of mocking tone to it, um, and that kind of a thing. And and you know, you're not understanding that person's view. So, like, what is the point of that other than to sort of score rhetorical points and sort of win? win the um what's the phrase you win the battle but you know lose the war kind of thing because i don't think you you're not going to convince that person obviously 
and maybe other people will be convinced of it, but typically it's a pretty obvious thing. So I think far better, and some people will talk about steel manning a person's view, um, which is just a cute way to say, like, just represent accurately the person you're in dialogue with, because why not? Like, what's the point of all this uh, if we're not actually getting at the the actual ix- issues and, and, and addressing what someone actually believes? So I think that is a hugely important point for people you know, I love. I, I honestly like. It's it's one of the great joys of my life to to have dialogue with people that disagree with me. So I hope hopefully you guys will disagree with something here somewhere. But no, I'm kidding. But uh, right, uh, and it, it's just pointless. It seems to me if I'm not actually getting their view right. So I, I'd say that's a that's a pretty important one. Let's bring this maybe to the local church level now. So as a pa- as a pastor myself. Um, I'm constantly uh, trying to get our people here at our church to really uh, engage our minds in ways that maybe we haven't before. And of course, I, I haven't perfected this, but I mean, it's just something that I think is tremendously important. That's why I think your book is um, going to be a really good tool for the church. But maybe speak to pastors. Why is uh, thinking about logic and taking it seriously important specifically for the pastor, but then also speak to the person in the pew? Why is it uh, something that should be important for the average church member? Yeah. Well, so uh, as you mentioned, the subtitle of the book is Thinking Critically and Christianly. Um, I think those things go together. Uh, That's kind of the thesis of the book in a lot of ways is to say, um, if we're not thinking critically, then there's a really terrific chance we're not thinking Christianly. Um. There's, you know, uh, a lot of people have pointed out how our world has sort of gone post-Christian where, where you know, the typical person you come across on the street doesn't have a Christian worldview maybe 50 years ago or so, I don't know when, but uh, that was at least much more common that people would have a Christian worldview, even if they weren't necessarily, you know, by our evangelical definition, saved or something like that. Um Right? They might not even be a member of a church, but they largely had a Christian worldview. Well, I, here's my sort of provocative claim that I make from time to time is that the, that the church is also in many ways post-Christian, where I think there's no guarantee that the person in the pew – we don't really have pews anymore, but um, right, person in the comfy chair uh, – uh, it has a Christian worldview either, right? And, and they may be sincerely uh, believers – but I think having a—it's it, entirely possible that a person sincerely believes Christianity is true, but really has no idea what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have Christian values, what it means to have your life sort of guided uh, by these, by you know, these sort of biblical and Christian principles and so on. And that's hard work, honestly. It's hard work to sort of dig in— um, I had a discussion with my class just the other day, um, and it's a class that's you know on these issues. And I asked the question like, "What's what's college for? <laughs> like, why are you here?" Uh, and it was really interesting because it was all pragmatic values. It was about getting a job. It was about um, 
you know, um, just having an education to get a better sort of situation in life. And there was nothing inherently, and this is a Christian university, right? And these are all Christian students. There was nothing inherently Christian about it. There was no Christian principles that they were sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of um, applying to the purpose for college. And so, um, and that sort of pragmatism, I think, is really, it's just a... It's just, it's a very American church Christian sort of thing. I mean, it's really just an American thing, but uh, it's definitely there in the church. And so, um, I think that when we when we start to think critically and we start to uh, you know really sort of evaluate our worldviews and things like that, that's hard work. But it's it's uh, it's part of coming to embrace uh the Christian worldview and then and the way I really like to see it and this the 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 emphasis on Jesus in the book of course is to say that like he's the model um he's the exemplar of this and so that we ought to uh live as disciples or as as Willard often would put it as as an apprentice to Jesus um and and again, part of that is of is constantly evaluating our world worldviews and our beliefs. And I think there again, um, that's hard work and that's gonna take uh having these sort of um tools, honestly. Uh the tools of logic to evaluate them. And so for pastors, I would say, look, I mean, you're preaching. <laughs> you know, you are you are developing and presenting ideas to people. Um, so logic is every, you know, is incredibly, uh, important to doing that well. Um, and I would say, you know, just in leading well, and again, being an apprentice to Jesus, uh, I, I think logic is just part of that picture, um, in doing ministry well. And then for the, just the, you know, I guess I've already sort of addressed this, the, uh, I think some one of you said earlier the normal person, uh, you know, the normal sort of churchgoer, um, right? It would be in in again if we're following Christ, then we would be evaluating our our views and and having Him be our teacher. And and, and that's just just one last thing to add. I think the the picture here too, and this is definitely a Dallas Willard picture, is uh, is that we would take all areas of life, like Christianity applies to everything. Like if Jesus is Lord, like genuinely Lord, then he should be Lord over all in all aspects of our life. And our intellectual lives are an important part of our, important part of who we are. Um, and then we, you know, live Christianly. <laughs> so if we're a business person, I think there is what it is to do business Christianly. And I think if we are uh, you know, a lawyer or so, maybe not lawyers, lawyers might, no, I'm just kidding, but, uh, right. There is what it is to do it Christianly and so on. Um, that's always my joke. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> right there. It, but again, that takes a lot of effort and it's going to take a lot of critical thinking about our views and how to do this and what it looks like to do it Christianly. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned preaching and, and I think that's, that's right. I think about it as a, as a preacher and a teacher in the church, uh, it, taking logic seriously, it, it makes us much more crisp with how we communicate yeah. with people. Um, so we don't make sloppy generalizations and, uh, you know, settle for just making broad statements. We can try to be as clear and crisp as we can. But then on the other side, 
for the person in the pew. Uh, we still have pews here. Uh, oh, you do? Yeah, okay, nice. We do. Yeah. So I wish we kinda, did. We're kind of old school. Uh, <laughs> so, but they're able to better evaluate what they're receiving, and not to be combative with the teacher or with the, with the pastor, but to say, you know, well, maybe that doesn't follow yeah. uh, from, from what, what you just said and right. then, then what you said over here. You know, those two things, uh, the second thing doesn't follow from the first. And that's that's really using logic. So I think this is important for no matter who you are, um, even if you're a person that you don't think you're cut out for, you know, academia or whatever, you know, you right. have to be for these things to be relevant for your life. So, Absolutely. And I think that's where uh, anybody, you know, no matter what your career or who you are, like I think there's some people that that probably just, you know, don't have the temperament and the personality to sit in a classroom, and that's totally fine. Uh, they're some of the smartest people I know. You know what I mean? Like they they don't have the advanced degrees, but they to think that they don't use logic or that logic isn't relevant to them is 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 crazy. Um, so yeah, I think that's right. I think, and again, and then to do it Christianly, that's that's the that's the big piece. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to to ask about intellectual virtues. Can you yeah. explain to me the difference between intellectual virtue and just a normal, say people talk about virtues all the time, but oftentimes right. people don't hear intellectual in front of it. So like, what's the distinction there and how does that work? Okay. So in it, what's interesting, this goes all the way back to Aristotle and in his, uh, Nicomachean ethics, uh, he, he has in there, right. He'll focus He'll focus on the moral virtues, which that's the, probably the more uh, – maybe for some of us the more natural sense of virtue, uh, but he talks about the intellectual virtues as well. And so what an intellectual virtue is – or maybe I should back up and say what a virtue is. So a virtue, um, when I'm you know learning these things, I always try to come up with a, sort of a word association so that I could remember them, and I think the word association is excellence. So – you know, Aristotle and others would talk about a uh, virtuous knife, and that would be a knife that's that's excellent, that cuts well or something. And so when he's talking about a virtuous human being, it's a little different, um, of course, but it would mean something like skilled, skilled in excellence or having a sort of habit of excellence. That's what a virtuous person is. And so now we can talk about Moral virtues, things like courage, um, things like truth-telling and honesty, that kind of thing. Um, but we can also talk about intellectual virtues. So it's having excellence um, in in the skill of thinking, <laughs> right? And so uh, uh, that – so anyway, that's what an intellectual virtue is. I don't know if you had a follow-up question to that or not. No, no, no. That's helpful. I just – when people look at it, I wanna wanted to catch out that distinction. So I have loved this interview, and I want to make sure to remind everybody here, you guys can go check out more about Travis's stuff at his website. You've got TravisDickinson.com. You've got about books, resources, speaking. Um, so you can find all that material there. Um, so I, I've had a tremendous time doing this, but I want to commend the book. So I, I what I like about the book um, and it's probably maybe it's partly because you're a non-specialist in the area. Is I think you write in a really 
readable way. So if, if you're a pastor at a church or something like this, I really think this is a, a great book that you could insert into your rotation to do a study on it with your church members. So if you're, uh, you've got like Wednesday nights or whatever that looks like for you, where you do sort of educational sort of stuff, I think this is a great resource to go through not only with your elders at your church or your deacons or whatever that may be, but I think you're just regular church members would really benefit from this. They'd understand it. You're not, this is not like super high level concepts where it's like really difficult to follow. I think anybody can follow along with what you're saying and benefit from it. So I I want to just recommend it in that format. I think it would be really helpful for that. A lot of our church members, I mean, Gosh, we just don't we don't think well, and I think this would be super super helpful. So, Travis, this has been great. Thank you for walking through us with it. I I, I really do recommend the book. I I don't I recommend everybody's book almost all the time, right? Um, with <laughs> right. with some exceptions, um, or I recommend it in limited formats. But this I think it's just sure. fabulous. So go buy it, Thank go you, use it in your church. I think you, you'll you'll find it is really helpful and it, it can spur some good conversations and help people be able to d- make some more distinctions in their own daily lives um, and to not fall prey to, to foolish arguments or, or things like that. So Travis, this has been great. Um, we really appreciated having you. I so appreciate that, first of all, and that's that's so uh, encouraging. I, I would also add too, there's, there's a number of there are a number of uh, practice problems too, and we're we're actually developing a, a website to do a bunch more of that stuff. So um, when when it goes through the logic, there's there's uh, right opportunity to kind of not just learn what it is, but actually get some use with it and some practice with it. And then, like I said, there'll be a website coming up through the publisher that'll uh, have have even more on that. So. Well, that, that's really awesome and exciting. So this will be a great resource, even more than it already is. So thanks for doing this. Uh, everybody's been listening. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And as far as I know, it will continue to stay that way for the foreseeable future until more people catch the vision and begin to create all their podcasts just like us. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.